We're taking our Bibles, we're headed for the book of Romans. The book of Romans. While you're turning, and if you didn't get notes, the fellows will walk through the auditorium and hand out those notes. While you're going, let me just see if I can get your brains working a little bit this morning so you're a little bit more talkative and participating. Name a special day that involves gifts. Christmas, Valentine's, anniversary, what else? Birthdays, anything else come to mind? I think we got most of them. The anniversary, Mother Father's Day, Valentine's, birthdays, and Christmas. Name this one. An item you buy at a souvenir shop. An item besides too much. An item you buy at a souvenir shop. T-shirt's going to be number one. What else do you have? A hat, coffee mug. What was that? Plaques? Okay, here's what they had. Stuffed animals, a mug, a magnet, postcards, keychain, and number one was t-shirts. What qualities makes a neighbor a bad neighbor? We're talking general qualities, not a specific thing like, you know, they park in your grass. Just general ideas. A noisy neighbor? A thief for a neighbor? Okay, that's true. What's that? A, a complaining neighbor, okay. A messy neighbor. See, most of us have no clue what it is because we've never had neighbor problems. Ha, ha, ha. Here's what they say. They assume too much. They take things. Mean, messy, noisy, and number one, uh, nosy, and number one was loud. Name something kids might have nightmares about. Monsters are going to be up there. Animals. I think. The dark, what's that? Homework. Homework? <laughs> I should put, what do adults have nightmares about? We'll put, just put work. Yeah, that's what we have. They had this, clowns, the dark, getting left behind, fire, hey, left behind. Can you imagine being left behind? When we were in college, I think I told you this, when we were in college, that one of the dorms floors set it up to look like the rapture took place. And so they had in the showers they, things running, clothes like somebody was walking, beds half made. And the one guy that they were targeting came back late at night from work, and he thought absolutely the rapture took place, and he was left behind. Poor guy sat in the middle of the hallway and bawled like a baby. You know, um, he was not unforgiving towards the others. <laughs> Spiders was another thing. Monsters was number one. Name something you like doing at church. Sleep? I try to accommodate you. So. Pray, sing. Okay, pray. Yeah, mention fellowship. Eat. Nobody's, nobody's commenting about messages and Bible study. Here's what they had. Working the nursery. <laughs> One person. Teaching kids. Praying with others. Seeing friends. Singing songs of worship. Learning the Bible. Would you agree? Now here's what hundreds of people responded. Listening to me for hours. Okay. So let's get started. Let's head over to the book of Romans. The book of Romans. You, all of you here probably are familiar. We're just going through this study. Let me pick up without any preliminaries. We don't have to talk what we did the last couple of weeks about some of the different points of view. So let's just get into 10, reason, 10 statements from, from the Bible that we can summarize what the Bible says about homosexuality. And then let's get into transgender. 
Okay, what does the Bible say? We were wrapping up last week with a couple of these comments. Uh, in the Bible, you look up the passages, and the passages are very clear. Multiple times that it will use the word or the idea of against nature, uh, vile affections, abnormalities, or uh, abominations. And so you go through multiple passages, and you have this same type of statement that talks about in a negative connotation going after strange flesh, going against what nature has said. The book of Romans talks about that. In Leviticus, it talks about it being abomination on a couple different passages. So nowhere in the Bible is this issue in particular presented in a positive light. Number two, we made this comment last week. The basic family unit from the very beginning and throughout history is a man and a woman. It's not a man with multiple ladies or a woman with multiple men. It's the idea of one man, one woman, not two ladies or two men. And throughout all the different passages that talk, like in Genesis 2.24, where it talks about the establishment of the family, and then it's repeated multiple times in the New Testament. Jesus uses that same text. Paul uses that same text. Matthew 19, Ephesians 5, in, in, uh, in particular those two. Um, passages in the New Testament talk about marriage, that talk about the idea of, in this one in particular, talking about the sexual relationship. That's First Corinthians in 7, 1 through 5. It talks about the physical relationship between a, a husband and wife. And again, it's wife, uh, um, feminine articles, feminine words, husbands in a, in a masculine sense. And so you get into Ephesians 5 where it's talking about family. It's wife, husband, wife, husband. It's not two husbands or two wives. You, uh, you, uh, we made this comment. Uh, some people will say, Sex is very private. It's personal business. And it is, except for God says, I, he, has, he has opinions. He has morality statements. He has standards for marriage. And he even talks about the idea that, hey, it may be personal, but, but fornication, adultery, you can claim that's personal as well. That he, he condemns those types of things that are not what he planned. And so God is very, very... Um, I want to be careful how I phrase this. God is encouraging physical relationships in the proper place because God made us uh, you know, creatures that have those desires which aren't bad. The will of God, even your sanctification, abstain from anything that is called fornication or pornea, and elder passages bring in homosexuality as pornea, as fornication. And so God's will is dealing with having a monogamous relationship. Homosexual acts and relationships are condemned in Scripture. Multiple passages, I know that they're re-identified, they're re-explained, but a simple rendering of the passage you have, to do, you have to do hermeneutical gymnastics to make it say anything different than what it clearly says. It says, you shall not lie with man or with a womankind. It is an abomination. Uh, man lying with a man as he lies with a woman, both of them, uh, he says, is an abomination. Unrighteous, and he talks about the type of lifestyles that would prohibit somebody or indicate they're not headed for heaven, and included in that effeminate abusers of themselves with mankind, which is homosexuality. Romans 1 talks about vile affections. Even their woman did uh, go against nature, so again, it's contempt. He's talking in Romans 1.27, that which is un unseemly, it says in the King James, 
Uh, it means that which is committing shameful acts. So God very clearly then goes on to say, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error. He is saying that that type of relationship is an error, not just a preference or something that he would tolerate, but it's an error which could have a penalty which is justified. In First Timothy, he talks about different types of sins that people are involved in, murdering manslayers, whoremongers, and he even includes in that list those who are practicing homosexuals, those who would be in the slave trade, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So again, he's making it very clear that it's something not positive but negative, talking about Sodom and Gomorrah and making them an example and saying to anybody else that would live in the same fashion, that would be live ungodly. And so we have all these different texts that bring us to that same spot that says they gave themselves to fornication, going after strange flesh, and as a result, they suffered a vengeance of eternal fire. Very clearly, it's a negative in Scripture. This is where we stopped last week. If you were with us, and I, and I went through this so quick and I missed emphasizing what I wanted to. You're in Romans 1. In Romans 1, he's going to be talking, and if you, we work through the passage accurately and slowly, we would have to say, okay, here's what he's, at. he's starting off with in verse 19. God is showing to all men his, his um, existence. If you look at it, in verse 19, he's revealed to all people innately, as well as through nature, he revealed to all people, I'm existent. And not only just that he is, but if you go to verse 19, that, uh, that it, in, in, in verse 20, it talks about his eternal power, his Godhead, his authority. And so what we get from Romans 1 is everybody has an awareness, even from creation, they have an awareness there's a designer. That's, in, that's just common sense within the heart. Now, people can deny that, and they can sear the heart, but it is an evidence that somebody, this is just too amazing, that, that there's somebody powerful. Somebody's got this, got this under control. And uh, later on in chapter 2, he says there's a second witness within everybody. You have creation on the outside and conscience on the inside, that there's a moral standard, moral code that everybody lives by. Now, God did this, he says in, the, in this passage, through creation to show his majesty, his power, his eternality. Then the question is, in going in ancient times and modern times, what did people do with the knowledge that there is a God, he is powerful, he is amazing, he is above us, what did people do with that? Go to verse 21. And they were not what? There's a negative that starts off. Okay? They don't glorify him, neither are they. They're not thankful, okay? So they're not giving him the honor, the respect. They're not giving him the due that he deserves by just looking and saying he's amazing. Then we also have in verse 21 that what they do is they became vain in their imaginations or in their thinking and their minds, their reasoning. The word that we have in, the, in verse 21 where it says imaginations, some of you may have a footnote or you may have a different translation. Their thinking, their reasoning. It's not their fantasies, it's their absolute thinking this through. Their common sense, let's put it that way. Their common sense does what? He says it became foolish uh, and darkened. And so he's saying that people corrupted their thought about God. That makes sense. Do people today show a lack of common sense 
when it comes to thinking about God. Absolutely. 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 Okay? And so it goes a little bit further, and it says that these people who were professing them to themselves to be wise, they were what? They became fools. So you have pseudo-intellectualism. Taking God out of the equation, all of a sudden we're going to try to appear very intelligent. But actually they appear very foolish. You know, it, 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 even those who would claim to be intellectual today, uh, in the sense of denying God, What's foolish about some of their conclusions about how we came to be then? Okay, here, this, is, this is the display of the foolishness. We take God out of the equation, but we're going to believe with our whole heart we came from what? You know, just some dirt, some, something just happenstance, and all of a sudden we just evolved and developed, and our ancient ancestors were slugs that developed into some type of an animal. And he says that's foolishness. It's foolishness. And by the way, science keeps on promoting promoting all this. Where is the evidence? There's all these gaps. It's a theory. But it's presented as intellectual. Yes? No? Okay. And so that's what he's talking about, is that people will become pseudo-intellectuals to the point that they make us to be appearing as we're idiots for believing there's a God who created. And so he's making very clear, this is what happens. When you take God out of the, out of the equation, how, de- how far in the depths can people go? Oh, they can go way down. They can go way down, and their minds can become extremely bizarre. And all of a sudden we have people worshiping the what more than the what? The creation more than the... Creator, and they do foolish things, where all of a sudden they say, these animals, these animals are gods. And so we're going to treat these animals in such a way that this animal can do or be or, you know, you don't dare, you don't dare interrupt wherever the cow wants to go in certain countries. And people will starve without taking the food that's provided in the cow. And so he's talking about how what happens is they worship the creation more than the creator. And, uh, and by the way, what do a lot of people, what are the pseudo-intellectuals, what creature do they start worshiping more and more? Themselves. Themselves. And so he's warned us of that. He says this is how, this is how decadent, this is how uh, devastating what happens that people in their minds go to this place. But it doesn't stop with just the reasoning, with the foolishness. When people take God out of the equation, not only do they get weird in their thinking, but then what gets even more perverse? The behavior. When beliefs and creed go, then so does behavior and conduct. And so he's talking about the next passage. He's going to, as he goes through, he talks about they gave themselves up to uncleanness through lusts. What's he talking about? Well, if we don't have a God that has put standards, then what, what goes? Anything goes. And so he's given us, he's given a history of the social decadence of society in just these few verses, which is really, it's a truism. We've seen this historically. This is what happens when we take God out of the equation. This happens on a personal level. If we take God out of the equation, how corrupt can we become in conduct? Any of us can become extremely corrupt, vile or selfish and self-centered. 
Now, he's given us that aspect, and then he starts getting pointed and specific about what type of unclean lust do people get involved in. And he starts mentioning that, and if you go into this text, what's the first unclean lust that he identifies and says, this is one of the activities that they get involved in? For this cause, verse, tw- uh, verse uh, 26, gave them up to vile affections. And may have another translation for vile affections? What was that? Okay, vile passions. What is the vile passion that's mentioned in the next phrase? Okay, even their woman did change the natural use into that which is against nature. And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman. What's he talking about? What specific sin? Homosexuality, okay? So he's identified it and said this is, one, this is how far... He's, he's very negative. You cannot twist this passage and say he's condoning it. He's making it very clear this is bad. This is a sign of decadence. Now I want you, and we did this so quickly last time. He has other words in here that give us an idea of God's opinion. And by the way, I'm coming from the idea that this is God's inspired word. He picked the words. He picked the phrases. He picked the paragraphs. God chose words for a reason, to help us to understand his viewpoint. And so in verse 24, if you say, okay, what word did he use that is going to be pointing to, further on the passage, to homosexuality? You have the, uh, the negative word in verse 20, 24. What is it? Okay. The, you, you got a couple, actually. You have uncleanness. Okay. You have the dishonoring. So you have a couple different ideas here that are very negative. The next verse, the next, uh, in verse 26, excuse me. What are some of the, some of the descriptive words? I th- you've already mentioned it. Vile affections. Okay. And against against nature. So he's given, he's given us a couple descriptive terms. This is his opinion of this activity. Verse 27, what's the descriptive terms? Again, you have against the, or leaving the natural use, working with that which is, what's your Bible read? Unseemly. Somebody want to help us out? Do you have a footnote? Do you have a different translation? Working that which is unseemly. Shameful? Or shameless, okay? Unseemly has the idea of things that are very, very, very embarrassing, shameful. Things that we probably don't even want to talk about. We're sometimes awkward about talking about it. Verse 28. Okay, the negative is they didn't retain God, the reprobate mind. And at the end of the phrase, doing those things which he calls what? They are not, in the King James, what do you have? They are not convenient. Okay, let's bring that up to a modern understanding of convenient. What is it? What do you have? Not ought to be done. Okay, that's a literal translation of the word. Something that ought not to be done. Again, extremely negative. Very pointed. But he works his way all the way through the passage. Keep on going through the text. Okay, how does God respond to people who have rejected him and accepted such types of lifestyles and activity. What does God do to them? What is, uh, how does God respond to them? What, do you, what verse are you at? Okay. He gave them over, in verse 26, He gave them over to vile affections. Okay. 
In verse 26, what else do you have? Do you have another reference, another uh, response similar? Where at? 28, where he says, uh, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, what did he do? He gave, he gave them over to a reprobate mind. Okay? Reprobate means debased, depraved. Something, again, very negative. My question I have for you is, what's this mean? What does it mean that he gave over to vile affections or he gave over to a reprobate mind? How does that flesh out exactly what did God do? Gave them what they wanted? Okay. There's, there's basically, and that's one of them, there's basically three possibilities that commentators come up with. That God did what it means, and by the way, the verb that, that's used both spots, gave them up, gave them up to the reprobate, gave them up to the vile affections. It's, the, it's a very intense word. Sometimes it's used in a good sense. Um, couple, like in Hebrews, where Jesus Christ said he gave up, the flat, he gave up his life. It's the same word. He abandoned, he just, it was something that was absolute, that he was determined to, to let it go. Okay, and so in this in this passage, it's got an, it's in a negative context, but the word itself is an intense word. He determined to let it go. Let it go in what way? How, how, what's he mean? Some think this that what it means is God just basically gave up, and and if I if I can use this this picture, he removed he removed the restraint of the Holy Spirit, the convicting, the chastisement, the correction. Do you remember in Genesis 6 where it talks about men were wicked in their imaginations continually and God said, my spirit will not always strive with them. And basically, I'm done with it. I'm done with the convicting work. It's going to be happening in the future. When does God remove the restraint of the Holy Spirit? At the rapture. He removes the restraint of the Holy Spirit and then what does that allow society to go? In other words, is God holding back sin to a degree? Yeah, he is. He is. To a degree, he's holding it back. Things could get much worse. But that is one possibility. God just said, okay, there was times where he just said, that's it. I'll let this community, I'll let this, this, um, this group, I'll just I'll take my hands off. And they're going to, they're gonna, I'm not going to, and they're going to they're gonna walk over the edge. Yeah, they're just going to get worse and worse. That's a possibility. The possibility is this, that God will not, will just let them experience every consequence that could naturally come. Um, what, we're, what we're implying by this is, does God hold back some of the consequences of your sin? Does God protect you from some of the consequences? He does every day, right? In His grace... To do, at, there's times where he holds back. And by his mercy, we don't suffer the full natural effects of our consequences. Some of us know this. That some of us in this room, in history past, you got involved with uh, substances, you know, different types of lifestyles that could have been pretty dangerous to you physically. But God in grace didn't allow the natural consequences to fully affect you. Does that make sense? Okay, um, you know, um, no, th- this wasn't any of you. But some of us, when we were teenagers, we got the hot cars. And we drove them like they were a hot car. 
wildly, you know, speeding. And God in his grace protected us at times from killing ourselves. Okay? That's what we're talking about. God in his mercy has, throughout mankind, and especially with believers, he's held back some of the natural consequences. Is he talking about in this passage that not, not just conviction, but consequences, you know, somebody involved in that type of life, somebody involved with promiscuous sex, what could be the, cons- the natural consequence? Any kind of sexual disease. STD of some sort. And he's saying, I'm just, I'm pulling back. And they're going to start suffering natural consequences. Or, this is the possibility, that it's not just natural consequences, but I am so fed up, I'm going to send divine judgment. Did that ever happen? What's, what's, what areas suffered divine wrath or retribution for Sodom and Gomorrah? Which one is it? Or what's the other possibility? It could be all of it. It could be to a different degree all of it. We don't know exactly, okay? But my, my gut kind of tells me it's any possibility here that God says, that's it. That God is strength. Which, by the way, if we look and say, is this the history of our country? Is this the path our country is following? What does this do to you? Does it scare you, the possibilities? That could some things could start happening more and more? So he's very, very pointed, okay? And then what happens in the next verse, as we just keep on going through, God turned them over to the error, and what happens? Verse 29, being filled with all unrighteousness. What did it lead to? More and more corruption. More and more decadence, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity. Now he mentions a plethora, a whole list of other types of evil and selfishness that just kind of spawns out of this type of a, type of a mentality. I give up God, I, I engage things against nature, and without any limitations in my governing me, what can happen? all of a sudden it just gets worse. He's not only describing the individual, but he's describing society as a whole. This is history. This is society. What types of things do societies then start saying are okay? Well, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder. Oh, can we pause there? Are we living in a society that is, uh, that is now approving more and more murder? Okay. That, that, that you and I find reprehensible, that they would propose in California that you can abort a baby after the birth. After the birth. What, is, what are they saying? 24 hours? Okay. Is the proposal. I, do you find that reprehensible? Okay. And yet society is saying, and what did Governor Newton say last week? He said, we are going to propose... That's, that California becomes a sanctuary state for anybody seeking abortion under our laws. And it's promoted. And so do we live in a day where murder is being promoted? Okay. He goes, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God. But haters of God. Do people in the general sense, in some of the people in this sector of society promoting all this, do they want to be reminded of God? 
No, and in fact, if we say what they're doing is wrong, what are we? Haters. We are haters. And so it's just the, the everything's topsy-turvy. He goes proud, he says, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents. I mean, you look at Chicago this week. And what are 400 teens doing at night, riding through the streets from parties? Okay. In my mind, my first question is, where are the parents? Where are the parents if they're at home? Okay. Um, without understanding, well, that we see what's happening. Covenant breakers, without natural affections, implacable and merciful, who knowing the judgment of God in their hearts, they're knowing there's going to be a payday some way, but they say, and, they, and in their sense, that they which commit some things are worthy of death. And you ask most people, do you believe in a God? The majority of people will say yes. And what will be, the, do you believe that God will punish wicked people? Majority of people will still say, yes, but not me. It's the real wicked people like, go back in history. Who's the most frequent modern history set? Hitler, okay? So we're not that, that far, but he's, he's going on. So they know some of those things, but they not only do the same, but they have pleasure in them. Watch, watch our comments. They have no regard for consequences. They give up, they, they get involved, and there's no regard of consequences. We don't care what the consequences are. And by the way, some, I don't know who it was, but this was an amazing quote. Sin would have far fewer takers if the, all the consequences were immediate. How true, right? Even for us. Okay, but let's go a step further here. And they base their activity basically on what feels good. It's a pleasure-seeking society. So he's given us this description of what can happen socially. And right in the midst of this, we have the idea of approving, accepting, and getting involved with the homosexual agenda, which is very clearly a part of this. Decadence according to this text. Can I add to it this idea that um, not only can promotion of this, this type of a lifestyle lead to decadence in a society, but promotion of this type of lifestyle in a personal sense can lead to it totally dominating somebody's life, like any other sin. Go to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. In Romans 6, there's a passage that he has just dealt with about the sinfulness of people, chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5, talking about salvation. Now, chapters 6, 7, 8, he's going to be talking, 6 and 7, he's going to be talking about sanctification, growing in your life. Chapter 8, he's going to talk about security of the believer. And uh, then he's going to end up in the book talking about your practical behavior. Look at verse 11. Likewise, reckon yourselves to be what? Dead to sin. Okay, but alive unto God. He is speaking to who? Christians. Remember at the beginning of the chapter, what shall we say then? Shall we sin that grace may abound? What's the response? God forbid. God forbid that we should say, oh, I can go and sin and God will forgive me, so I have a license to sin. God forbid. And he says, what you need to do is reckon yourselves to be dead. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body. I want you to catch something. Maybe you want to write it here. The verb that's used at the beginning of verse 12 means stop letting. Stop letting sin, therefore, reign. What's he implying? Is it possible for believers to still sin? Yes. Is it possible for believers to become 
dominated by a sin in their life, a besetting sin? Yes, okay? So don't let sin, stop letting sin therefore reign in your body that you should obey the lust thereof. Don't yield your members to instruments of unrighteousness, but yield yourselves unto God. Go down to verse 14. For sin shall not have what? Dominion over you, uh, for you are not under the law. What shall? What then? Shall we sin because we are un, not, not under the law but under grace? Uh-uh. God forbid. Knowing not that to whom you yield yourselves... What's the word? Eight times servants shows up in this next section. Servants keeps on showing up. What's that mean? In this context, you are servants to who? One of two options. You are serving... God or you're serving self and sin. And he doesn't make it out like, hey, listen, you, you just make an accidental slip. He is talking about if you choose this, it will dominate you one or the other. And he's pointing out that sin doesn't settle with just one. Remember Lay's potato chips? Do you remember the old, the old advertisement? You can't eat just one. So he's giving, us, uh, he's giving us some clear indication in this passage that if we engage in some besetting sin, it's going to do what? It's going to start dominating us. And that can be any sin. It could be cussing, cursing. It could be smoking, drinking. It could be your anger. It could be aggressive driving. It could be stealing from work. It could become you know, lying, being dishonest on pay cards. And all of a sudden, it just leads and leads and leads. But in this, in this text, he's talking about, hey, listen, don't turn yourself to, over to a sin. And especially in this area that we have to be careful. When it comes to sexuality and sensuality, we can't dabble with a little bit of pornography. It'll dominate. Can't dabble with a little bit of fornication. It will dominate. And usually not only does it, does it dominate, it starts becoming weirder and weirder and more perverted. And so he's warned very clearly in this text. It will have individual, it will have social types of impacts. So homosexuality, as well as other sins, is a de- degeneration of personal standards, both socially and individually. Um, yes, people will say homosexuality is a genetic thing. You're born with it. You can't help it. Um, it is not an uncontrollable genetic impulse. And by the way, usually they'll bring out, you know, Dr. So-and-so said, listen, for every doctor that might say this, you can get lots of doctors who say the difference. Okay. It's like every doctor who says masks are good, you've got dozens of doctors who say masks aren't good. That science is somewhat fluid and debatable. And so to say, well, this is, you know, these new studies, don't get caught up. Please don't get caught up with just the popular promotion of new studies, new studies, new studies. Here's an area, and one area just to illustrate, one area that so many of us get caught up and say, well, there's got to be allowances for it. I get sick and tired of people quoting on the abortion issue all the ladies who are pregnant by rape or something other other another. The statistics are clear. The vast, 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 vast number of abortions are not a result of somebody who by inc- got pregnant by incest or rape. 
They're less than a percent of all the millions that have been aborted. But they're promoted and makes it sound like that have, it's all the time. It's all the time. And that's the major reason. It is not statistically. It just isn't. But we all get caught up you know, with what we hear. And so we hear a lot that this is a choice. What does God say about this? Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them, in like manner, giving themselves over. Genetic or choice? That's choice. Clearly a choice. Giving themselves over to fornication and going after. That is, by choice, choosing to go after strange flesh. Not being pulled by a chain that they had no, no compulsion to do and against their will. This is choice. This is choice. It's, it's clearly choice. Even if somebody did, even if somebody did have a tendency or weakness, physically, um, DNA-wise, and there are some people that have a d- DNA genetics that say they have a, they have a different weakness. I don't even have to go DNA. Do you know some people that can hold their liquor and some people who can't? Okay, people respond differently. Just because they, they have a disposition towards something, does that open the door and say, go and do it? Okay, so some guy has a disposition towards attraction to little kids sexually. And it's his disposition. Does that make it okay? No. Some guy has a disposition that he just has to have satisfaction physically, lots and lots and lots, so he has lots of women in his life. Does that make it okay? No. No. So it's a foolish type of an argument that we could, we could uh, you know, talk about more. Here's my question. Why is it not surprising that this becomes the, the excuse now? Why is it not surprising that it's now genetics... And this is going to be the popular explanation for why people get involved in gay acts or relationships. Why is that not surprising? Why do you think people are using this argument? What's that? They're blaming God. It's going back to blaming God. Because who, who gave you your DNA and dispositions? God. God. Is it surprising that God would be blamed? Not at all. Go back to Granddaddy Adam. What did, who did he blame? In the very first sin, who did he blame? Two different individuals. He blames Eve and blames God for giving him Eve. Right? It's human nature to blame somebody else. Okay? The effects of being turned over to the reprobate mind, okay, to try to, why would people promote this argument? Well, God's turning them over to a reprobate mind, which just gets worse and worse and takes God out of the equation. To a degree, sinful men always try to justify their deeds. It removes personal guilt and responsibility. I, I, I can't help it. I can't help it. I just have a disposition for anger. Therefore, beating up Deb, this does not happen. Trust me. Okay? Beating up Deb, it's not my fault. It's just my disposition. Okay? And it removes the guilt. And in fact, I could blame her that she irritates me. Does that ever happen in abuse cases? Yes. 
Yes. Place the blame squarely upon God. That was Adam's argument. If accepted, this argument supports and promotes approval of the practitioners by the general public. And isn't that happening in society now? Is it happening in churches? Yes. This, they can't help it. It's genetic. So, you know... God made them this way, so we might as well accept them in our church, in our pulpits, and in everything else. And we have to reinterpret all the verses that clearly say it's wrong. And so we rethink and rechange standards and morality because it's starting coming from this whole concept of let's, let's stop thinking God. Let's not retain God in our knowledge. And so it's very, very dangerous. Number six, we said practicing uh, homosexuality, it says, is a choice. And I wanted to bring this out. Um, since, since, uh, yeah, how do I want to phrase this? Okay. Um, people will say God is responsible. But if God called something sin, which I've proven all right, God calls this sin, then we can't say God put this into my life. Does that make sense? Okay. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither what? Neither does he tempt any man. Okay. By that, what we're talking about is, um, is does, God, does God put in that, some, that person's life, does, is God the one responsible for saying, Pursue after homosexuality. That's something, you know, that is innately within you. No, God can't do that. That's contrary to God's nature. doesn't do it. But can somebody, even a believer, be tempted to practice this sin as well as any other sin? The answer is yes. The answer is yes. Um, because biblically, now you may find this sin reprehensible. You say you don't have an issue with it. Good for you. Some people find cussing reprehensible yeah, and evil. Some people find pornography reprehensible and evil and don't have an issue with it. Some, some here um, got over sins differently. Some people who, before they got saved, they were giving themselves to drugs, alcohol, tobacco, whatever it may be. And when they got saved, how quickly did the temptation go? Quickly, for some people. For some people, the temptations, they drag on for a while, and it's a battle. And so we, you know, pick your pet sins, they're there, and we can be tempted in any area. Temptation, here's a biblical thoughts, temptation in and of itself is not sin. How do we know that? Jesus was tempted in all manner like as we are tempted, he, but he never Sin. Don't confuse the temptation with sinning. Okay, sin, temptation itself is not sin. It's what? When does it become sin? Okay, when we entertain or act upon the temptation. We know that because every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when the lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And my dumb illustration is this. 
Let's go rob a bank. I've just laid it out before you. Have you sinned? No. No, because what have most of you thought when I said it? Stupid. Okay. Dumb, crazy. Okay. The temptation isn't the sin. Okay. The, the temptation is when we entertain it and act upon it, and then it brings forth sin, and sin when it's finished brings forth death. We have the responsibility to make the right choices to control our passions. And somebody may have a passion towards, because of experience, because of different factors in life, they may have a, compa- a passion to try to find somebody of the same gender to fulfill some type of emotional need in their life. That, that doesn't mean that they are sinning. Okay? The temptation may be there, but they have, to, they have to handle that temptation biblically. We'll come to that in a little bit. Practicing homosexuality is dangerous. It, it, it's a fact, folk. It's dangerous. How so? Not just biblically, but it's dangerous. How so? Disease. Disease. Say what you want, but where did the predominant number of AIDS come from? Not all of it, but where did the predominant number start in, in America? In this community. Okay? Um, the, they're well documented. I don't need... I don't need to rehearse all of this. It, you know, documentation is there. You know, that, that is, it is a dangerous lifestyle. Here's a passage that goes with it. 1 Corinthians chapter... I think that's wrong. I think it's 6. Yeah, it's 6.18, sorry. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6.18. Flee any kind of immorality... Every sin that a man does is without... This is interesting. This passage identifies something about sin and about sexuality. Most every sin we do, he says, is something that is basically external, the way it comes from and how it works. But when we get into sexual immorality, what, do you, what does he make very clear? You sin against your own body. You bring harm to your own body. Not that, that no other sin, you know, drinking, you can have sclerosis. But in particular, sexual fornication is really dangerous to our own body. Now, our own body could include this. Right? Because why? Because we are one flesh. Okay, so he's very clear on this one. That's very, very dangerous. Um, number eight. What does the Bible say? Homosexuality can be forgiven and overcome. This is very important that we understand. Okay, we understand. They can be, individual practicing it can be forgiven. This is not the unforgivable sin. Okay, just like any others. Remember back in 1 Corinthians chapter 6? You there? You close to it? Please get there. This is a critical passage. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 10. Nor thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, those lifestyles are not to be lifestyles practicing by believers. It's, it's unbecoming of believers. But what does he say in verse 11? 
Such were some of you. Such were some of you. you, But you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified. Even murder was forgiven. All fornication can be forgiven. Adultery can be forgiven. He's very clear on this. No matter what what the sin, it can be forgiven. And our point is, some of the believers in the church of Corinth had homosexuality in their background. We also know that they had been totally forgiven of it. He makes it clear in this text. We also know they were able to grow out of this lifestyle. They are being sanctified from it. We also know from this text they were an acceptable part of the church. They're within the body when he writes to them. We also know from this text that Paul doesn't identify the individuals. Isn't that wise of Paul? He doesn't point out and say, well, I'll just to let you know that Joe here, you know, was a molester of children. What would that do to poor Joe? It would, it would destroy him. Now, should we be careful if Joe has that background? Yes or no? Yes. And should I, who, if I'm aware of that, should I be taking precautions for the body of Christ? Absolutely, positively. Do I need to publicize it? No. No. How would you like your sin publicized? Okay. And so he's saying it can be forgiven and overcome. Let me take another 10, keep in and get, see if I can get through all 10 this morning. Christian disciples should never be engaging in homosexuality. Believers should not. The reason I say that is we've already pointed out it's unbecoming of a believer. But I want you to jump to the, this passage. First, Ephesians 5. Fornication and all uncleanness and covetousness. That which is sensually selfish, that which is monetarily selfish. Watch the next phrase. Let it not be once named among you as becoming saints. Pretty, pretty clear here that this is not to be a practice within the body of Christ. It is sexual immorality and thus against the will of God. We've already seen that. This is the will of God that your sanctification abstain from fornication. Besides, your body is the what? The temple of God. You are not your own. And isn't it interesting? Are you still close to this passage? Go to verse 19. 1 Corinthians 19. What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God? You are not your own. You are bought with a price. What's the preceding verse and topic? Fornication. The preceding verse has to do with sexual immorality. That's when he highlights your body belongs to God. Very interesting. Very interesting that he would do that in that context. But we usually forget the context. Number 10. We should share there is hope and help that comes through Christ for any homosexual trying to find true peace. Any, anybody who has that in their background, anybody who has it in their present, what we need to do is share, hey, listen, you want victory, it comes through Jesus Christ. You want to have real peace. It's not found in, quote-unquote, gay lifestyle. It's found in Jesus Christ. You want to find fulfillment emotionally. It's found in Jesus Christ. And so we need to share that. And uh, although we don't approve of the sin, we need to love the sinner and show that God's love for them and that if they repent, they're going to be accepted within the body of Christ. We need to make that very clear. So if somebody were coming to our church and um, they they were attending, how should we respond to somebody? Welcome them. Show them that 
that are accepted. And so they walk into our building and they come with a partner and they sit right... They would never... People don't sit in the front. Okay, They sit right here. So what should everybody do? Leave this huge gap. Leave this... No. No. By welcoming them and trying to show the love of Christ, does that mean we condone what they're doing? No. We'll just let the Word of God work. Let the Word of God work. And... Be careful, cautious, and that doesn't mean that what I should do is point out and make the sermon all of a sudden at the last minute, target their sin. You will not want me targeting your sin. You know, if you were, if you were just coming in and, and I saw something and all of a sudden, you know, you wouldn't want that. You wouldn't appreciate it. Let's just share Christ with them. They can become born again. And so now here's, here's where... Um, what do you do if you have a coworker, friend, or relative who says they're gay? How do you respond to them? Here's where you guys are at. Do you have a gay couple into your house? What do you? Oops, that's where. Do you? You know, how do you treat their partner? Do you go to their wedding? Okay. These are tough, tough questions that you're going to have to answer. And you've got, the, you've got the tension on both sides. This is wrong, but I want to show Christ towards them. What's the answer? I don't have it in all, in all situations. I don't know. Every situation I want to evaluate, I want to deal with, I want to be able to be like somebody visiting and show compassion and care, but at the same time, I want them to know we're not approving of it. It's a battle. It's a struggle. And you know where some of you are at? It's in your families. What do you do? Do you absolutely never have contact with your child, your grandchild, ever again? Or do you have contact, you let them know where you stand, and you share share Christ with them, and you pray for them, and you love them, but, but you don't condone, you don't make it convenient for them by, by you and your partner can come and stay overnight at my house. Those, those are battles, those are struggles. We need to be very careful, very careful how we respond and how we respond to other people if they would handle it a little bit differently. Father, give us wisdom. This is tough. This is really, really tough. And, uh, and I struggle in my mind from different texts on how to respond one way or the other. I pray that you would just please give us the wisdom of Christ to know what to do, to present holiness, but also to present the fact of the love of Christ, who did not isolate from sinners. Help us to find that same balance that he had in Jesus' name. Amen.